0: So Alan pointed out that uh, our passage this morning is John 3, 16 through 18. So this should take no time at all, right? Because everybody in here is an expert on John 3, 16 through 18. Easy verses, piece of cake. Not so much. But I've been... Uh, as I've had the opportunity to be up here, we've been going through the gospel according to John, and of course we are in chapter 3, where we're uh, in the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, uh, important for us to remember who Nicodemus is. He was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the people, he was somebody who theoretically knew scriptures very well, and uh, Jesus had some some relatively harsh words for him, as we saw last week or last time I was up here, not last week. Last week was Danny up here. So um, it just happened, and I didn't plan it this way, okay? I got a text message Tuesday afternoon from Danny that said, Hey, can you preach this Sunday? I'm sick. Of course, absolutely. Start writing sermon now. I didn't plan this. This is just how it worked out. Danny has been going through the 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. Huh, maybe God has a message for us. On top of that, his Sunday night classes, he's been going through the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we all know that the the beginning of that particular passage, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., etc., so on and so forth. Right? Love. Um, so there, there, there seems to be an idea that love is something that we perhaps, maybe, kind of, sort of need to focus on as God's people. Um. Last week, one of the things that Danny pointed out was uh, Paul's words, and we read them this morning, that the gifts of the Spirit would pass away, prophecy would pass away, words of wisdom and knowledge would pass away, but love would endure forever. Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples, uh, and he was interrupted by the Pharisees, and they decided that they were going to try to trick him and get him to say that one of the commandments was more important than the others, because then they could label him as a heretic. They said, teacher, what is the most important commandment? And so Jesus did what Jesus does, and he summed up the Ten Commandments by saying that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being. That's my paraphrase. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is all of the different aspects of a person's being. And then he said the second commandment is like it, and that is love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he took all ten of the commandments and summed them up in just two, and he said those two are equal. In other words, when the Pharisees tried to trick him and say which is the most important commandment, he said yes. Paul tells the Galatians, again with the fruit of the Spirit, that their body and their lives should be filled not by the works of the flesh, which is all kinds of self-serving, self-worshipping activity. Some things that we consider to be completely heinously evil, some things that we would normally consider to be, well, that's not that bad, right? Envy, I mean, yeah, we're not supposed to have it, but it doesn't really hurt anybody. Yeah, it does. Paul says that should not be the mark of our life. Instead, it needs to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, I do know all of them. Don't ask me how good I do at practicing all of them. Because i got to tell you, the Sunday night study is really painful if you don't wear steel-toed boots. So I can see the look on some of the faces out here, right? That look says, Bill, we get it. Love is important. We understand. The horse is dead. Quit beating on it. Love should be a major component of the Christian life. We know we're supposed to love our neighbor, and Jesus said we even have to love our enemies. And we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hopefully they do not fall into that previous category. I'm just saying... Let's be real. Husbands, we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we're supposed to love God with all of our being. Jesus, right before he left, told the disciples, a new command I'm giving you. What is it? Love one another as I have loved you so that people will know that you are my children. Huh? Love, 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 love. The Bible even says that God is love, right? So it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for us to understand what that word, love, it's only four letters. What does it mean? Because in the world that we live in today, that's a big question. What does it mean to love? So, I don't do slides very often, so I'm going to be awkward every time I do slides. Okay? According to the Oxford Dictionary, love, when defined as a noun, is a feeling of affection for a person or a fondness for an object. Okay? As a verb, it means to feel affection or attachment to someone or to like or enjoy something very much. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, love is very much an emotional feeling or experience of that feeling. Of course, the problem with that in English is I can say something along the lines of, I love my wife, which is fantastic. I mean, I just pointed out, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wife as as Christ loved the church. Don't ask me how well I do with that as Christ loved the church part. I'm still working on it. I am a work in progress. God's not done with me yet. We've only had 30 years together. (laughs) But I can also say that I love my puppies. Hopefully that looks different. Wouldn't you say? (laughs) I hope so. I can also say I love pasta. Thank you. If anybody would like a son-in-law, I'm giving one away for free. I love pasta. It is one of my favorite foods. That also should look different than the way I love my puppies and the way I love my wife. But they all fit the Oxford English definition. I have a fondness, a feeling of affection for my wife, my puppies, and pasta. So that's probably not the best definition to look at. (laughs) I'm just saying. So I, I went out and did a Google search, which is always the best thing to do. Right? When in doubt, ask Uncle Google. I did a Google search, and I pulled up another website. I'm not going to refer to that website by name, so you don't go out and go to that website and give them any more advertising money. Okay. And um, they, had a, they had done a survey and asked, because <laughs> this, is, this is reliable, what do you say that love is? That was the survey. And so it basically, it boiled down to a list of metaphors that people had chosen Uh, To describe love. Now, (laughs) there is the postmodern idea that you can describe something in contradictory terms and that's okay, but that is not okay. Okay? I cannot describe the carpet as red and blue at the same time. It is not. It is red. If you're colorblind, take my word for it. It is red, it is very red. In fact, the first time you walk in this sanctuary, that is the first thing that you notice. Man, that carpet is red. It was 22 years ago was the first time I walked in this sanctuary, and that's exactly what I said. And that carpet is red. So let's look at these metaphors here. Love is security. Security. Love is respect. Love is compromise. Love is commitment. Love is equality. Love is patience. Now, are any of these bad in and of themselves? No, I I think they are all good expressions of love. But is love security? Eh, I'm not not sold on that. Not sold on all of these as being a very good definition, maybe description, but not definition. So, of course, as Christians, we should go not to Uncle Google, not to the dictionary, but we should go to the Word of God to define what God means when he tells us that we need to Love one another. We need to love him. We need to love our neighbors. We need to love our enemies. We need to love our spouses. Basically, if it's a human being with a pulse, we need to love it, right? That's how some of us think. I'm just putting it in real terms. Okay? Show of hands, how many of you drove on pass road today? Huh? Come on. If, if you pulled into this parking lot, you drove on pass road. You had to. Okay? Okay? So you have to love those people too. Okay? All of them, because I'm one. <laughs> so I've already referred to Galatians and 1 Corinthians, and I've talked about the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Um, so now if y'all would turn to John chapter 3, or because we live in a modern world, If you do not have a paper copy Bible, that does not make you less of a Christian. You can pull out your smartphone and you can tap your way to John chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse 16. Um, I will be reading from the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, I believe those are NIV. If you have your smartphone version, it can be whatever you decide. I'm getting there. Don't be impatient. Once you get to those verses, as is our custom, I would ask everybody to stand for God's word this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Please have a seat. So let's put this in context. Who wrote this? Who who wrote this passage? John, the disciple who Jesus loved. Okay? So he's probably got a pretty good handle on what Jesus actually said. Okay? He wrote this for the benefit of the church. Uh, In fact, just in case you don't have this tool in your toolbox, when you are sharing with somebody, when you are sharing the gospel or you're sharing with a new believer, you're trying to disciple a new believer, somebody who wants to get into reading the word, the book of John is a great book to start with. It is probably one of the best books for a person to start with. Um, Jesus had just finished telling Nicodemus that a person must be born of the Holy Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And you remember how Nicodemus responded, "You, you must be born again, I'm not sure how that's supposed to work. And Jesus answered that impossibility by saying that it's an action of the Holy Spirit. It is something that God Does it is not something that man can do. It is not something that man has any impact on whatsoever. Man can neither control nor predict it. It is 100% an action of God. So remember our salvation fits into that category. Everything that God does in our life fits into that category. We only have the option of submitting or being disobedient. And so Jesus says in this passage that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, Jesus has not identified himself as such yet. Because Nicodemus, remember when Nicodemus started, he said, we know you're a prophet because of the stuff that you do. So he doesn't know that he's talking to the only son that's saying these words. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read, recite John 3.16, I always, when I was younger anyways, I always had the idea that it meant God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. And that's, that's true, he does love the world so much, but really the sense of the original language would be better to read it along the lines of the way the... Christian standard or the New English translation put it. And that's up here on the screen. God loved the world in this way. Or in the New English, this is the way God loved the world. Now, there is nothing better. I am, I know I'm one of those weird, I'm going to admit something, guys. I'm sorry. I like to read instructions. I know, I know, you can wait for me in the parking lot and collect my man card later, right? I like to know how I'm supposed to do things. And that probably comes from the 30 years that I previously mentioned with my beautiful bride um, because she makes sure I know how to do things. And I love her for that. And if I do them the wrong way, she lets me know that I should have done them the right way. That's not a negative I like having instructions that tell me this is what this is supposed to be. This is how you do this. And Jesus just gave it to us. God loved the world like this. This is what love means. This is how love looks. Wow! We get to the book of Romans in in chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says the same thing. God demonstrates his love towards us. He doesn't leave us to figure it out. Why wouldn't God leave us to figure out what love looks like? Because we're bad at it. We are bad at it. Let me go back to the similarity between the statement, I love my wife and I love pasta. We are bad at defining what love looks like. The world that we live in today, love means I agree with you on everything, and I can't tell you that anything that you think is wrong. Right? No. No. Not at all. We have raised four children. Three of the four of them are here with us this morning. The fourth one is puppy sitting. And watching on YouTube. There were many times I told them that what they thought or what they did was wrong. And I did it because I loved them. Because what they were doing or what they were thinking was going to cause them harm. I don't want them to have harm come to them, so I'm going to disagree with you. The same goes for the world, but the world doesn't see it that way, do they? Now, of course, as with everything in our experience, we have to fight through our sin nature. We've got to battle through our sin nature. We have to fight through that natural desire to do things our way, right? We want to be selfish in the way we show love. How do you do that? You can't. You can't be selfish if you're trying to show love to somebody. It doesn't work. So if I'm being selfish while I'm trying to show love, guess what I'm not showing? I'll give you a hint. The answer is love. So we get back to Jesus' words here in John. He says, God loved the world and demonstrated it by giving his one and only son, that is Jesus. And what did Jesus come here for? So whoever puts their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus will have eternal life as opposed to eternal punishment in hell. Something for you to remember, that, that, that is, Jesus is not advocating annihilation when he says that we're going to have eternal life. He is comparing eternal life with God in heaven to eternal punishment with God's wrath in hell. So consider that for a minute. God demonstrated his love for his people by sending his son for them to have eternal life. So then the first principle of God's love for us to recognize is that God's love is active and beneficial. In order to demonstrate love, we need to do something and it needs to be beneficial for the person Who is receiving it? Passive love is not a thing. When we looked at those definitions from the Oxford Dictionary of having feelings, right? Love is a feeling. That's passive. That is a completely passive thing. I love watching football. Does the football team know that? (laughs) No. No, they don't know that. It is passive. Possessing feelings about someone or something, being comfortable with somebody, being able to compromise with somebody. That's not an action, and it's not necessarily beneficial. God took action for the beloved. Verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That means the condemnation was already there. (laughs) Jesus came so that we could have something that we lacked. God sent His Son so that we could have that fellowship with God. The world already has condemnation. Whoever doesn't believe in Jesus and his work for salvation is condemned. It's it's done. Condemnation is our natural state. I may earn some hate here, but we're born in it. That is our natural state, is condemnation. Whoever does not believe God in his promises for a Savior in the Old Testament, his promises for deliverance, his promises that he was going to have David's heir on the throne, his promises that Abraham was going to have a son, that the seed of Abraham was going to save his people, whoever did not believe those promises before Jesus appeared on the scene, and whoever does not believe God's promises now well, they are going to have the consequences for that rebellion in eternity. That's kind of rough. It's kind of hard. I'm not happy about that. I don't want anybody to suffer that. So I guess then my love for the world, better be active and beneficial, like God's. He demonstrated in an action on behalf of those that he loved. So then I, too, ought to love people actively in a way that benefits them. And maybe, just maybe, that means... Sharing the gospel with them. Maybe that means praying with them. Maybe that means giving them something. So we should make sure our love (laughs) is active and tangible. I can tell you all day long that I love somebody, but if I don't talk to them, if I don't reach out to them, if I don't check on them, if I don't show them and demonstrate to them some kind of active, beneficial love, then what I have is nothing. Y'all remember what James said about this? About the difference between faith and works? Right? James, half-brother of Jesus. Probably heard this stuff a lot while he was growing up. He says, if your neighbor that Jesus says you're supposed to love comes to you naked and hungry in the middle of the night and your response is, be warm and well-fed, I'll pray for you. And then you shut the door in his face. Do you really have faith? Do you really have love? I dare say the answer to that is no. No. So now, there's something that I've mentioned a couple of times already that I would like to point out as the second principle of God's love. And that is that it's undeserved and unconditional. Here's how God loved the world. He sent His Son to save people because they were already condemned. Going back to Romans 5.8, God proved his love towards us in that while we were working on it, no, we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Not one of us, none of us in here have done anything to obligate God To anything. Anything. As a matter of fact, that is the very definition of the word grace. It is undeserved. You cannot make God owe you grace because the minute it is owed, it is no longer grace. It is justice, it is wages. And what does Paul tell us the wages for our life is? (laughs) It's not grace. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the undeserved, unmerited, unconditional favor of God that demonstrates his love is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Huh. Jesus made it pretty clear here in John chapter 3 that the world already stands condemned. There was nothing that caused God to choose that time, that place, that anything for Jesus to arrive except God and his good pleasure. For those of us in here who are saved, I will not make the mistake of assuming that everybody who is sitting in the church house on a Sunday morning is saved. I would like to think that is true, but... I'm just cynical enough to think it might not be, right? But for every one of us who is, and I'm not going to take a test for all of you, but for every one of us who is, which one of us can say we are saved because we deserve it? I know I can't. I know who Bill was before God changed him. Some of you know who Bill was before God changed him. Okay, one of you know who Bill was before God changed him. So, God's love is active, beneficial, and is independent from our behavior. In fact, I would say it is despite our behavior because we can't make God love us. So is our love unconditional and undeserved or do we fall into the trap of doling out that active and beneficial love only for those people that we like? Only to those people that we're comfortable around. Only to those people who are in a socio-economic status that doesn't make us feel weird? Only those people who look like us, who sound like us, who dress like us, who go to the same church as us. Our love for others must be independent of the way we feel about them and for what they can or cannot do for us. Because if it's based on any of those factors, then it's not love. We have a simple reason to love others, and that is because God told us to. Jesus said it. God said it. I don't have to like someone in order to love them. In fact, Jesus says, Love your enemies. How many of you in here like your enemies? Nobody? Okay, how many of you in here have enemies? Come on, y'all are making stuff up. I will go back to how many of you drove on pass road? (laughs) It's like playing bumper cars out there. It is not natural to love our enemies. They're enemies because we don't like them. Jesus didn't say, like everybody. He said, love them. We have to make that step to love people regardless of how we feel about them. Now, there's a third principle here. This is probably the first thing that you all thought of when we went to this passage, and that is that God's love is sacrificial and costly. Love is not cheap. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sacrificed his only son for people who stood condemned because of their rebellion against him. The epitome of love your enemies. You want another example of this? Jesus, as he lay on the ground, on top of the cross, with a Roman soldier, probably leaning on his forearm, with a knee, driving a spike into the joint where his hand and his wrist come together, prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now here I have to emphasize, Jesus was fully human. Yes, he was fully God. No, I cannot tell you how that math works. Okay? He was fully human, he was fully God. 100%, 100% equals 200%. No. Jesus was one. One. But he was fully human and fully God. And that means as an infant, he probably had diaper rash. Eww. Nobody likes to think of the, that, that little baby Jesus born and laid in a manger having a dirty nappy. He was human, he went through his teenage years. In fact, we're told that when he was about 12, they took him to the temple. Well, when he was about 13, he probably had a growth spurt that meant his arms and legs were longer than he was used to, and he tripped over things. He probably stubbed his toe. As Danny has pointed out, he lived in the Middle East in the first century before deodorant. He probably had BO, because as a human being, he had bacteria that lived on his body. His voice probably cracked. He would have gotten angry. We know Jesus got angry. We talked about that a couple, of, a couple of sermons ago when I was up here. When he went to the temple and he responded to the priests and the Levites who were letting people stand in the way of folks worshiping. He got angry. He flipped tables over. He chased animals out of the temple court. He did not sin. He maybe even got angry at his parents. Because they were human too. Okay, parents, raise your hand if all of the things that you did and said to your children were just and right. i got too many kids sitting here in the sanctuary. I'm going to keep my hands in my pockets. The difference between us and Jesus is he never gave in to that temptation. Now why am I bringing all this up? Because he is the only person in creation to die without deserving it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. And yet he earned that death for us. He took that death for us. He Not only did he die, but he died the most cruel, humiliating, painful death that man has ever thought of. Death by crucifixion is death by slow suffocation in your own bodily fluids. Not only was he hanging there in the sun, but it was after he had been beaten with a scourge. Now, if you don't know what a scourge is, it was a many-tailed whip that had bits of metal and bone woven into each one of those tails so that when you were struck with it, it wouldn't just bruise or welt, it would cut the skin open. Not only was he beaten and whipped and spat upon, he was also hanging there in the Middle Eastern sun. If you've never been to the desert, you might not know what that's like. If you want to figure it out, go home, set your oven on about 400 degrees. When it preheats, open the door, stick your head in for a while. hanging in the sun with nothing to drink, with all of the weight of his body suspended on those arms with nails, again, stuck into the joint between hand and wrist, bleeding out. Oh, and by the way, the least of his worries, but it is a worry, he was stripped naked. And all of the people who had on Friday proclaimed... Hosanna, they're walking by laughing at him and joking about him and mocking him. Let him call angels down to deliver him if he is the son of God, come on now. Trying to minimize the horror of Jesus' death by minimizing his humanity would be a really, really, really big error. His death was as horrible as it can be. And he knew that it was coming. He knew how bad it was going to be. Or at least he thought he did. Because when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying... He asks the Father, if there's anything else we can do that would would satisfy this requirement, can we do that instead? Nevertheless, it's not my will, it's yours. I want to do what the Father commands. And in that moment of hanging on the cross, as Jesus became sin for us, the one thing that He never, ever, ever experienced was the weight of condemnation for sin. He had never experienced it before. But Scripture says He became our sin, so that we could become His righteousness. Think about that for just a second. He became our sin. He didn't just take our sin, He became the embodiment of our sin. And He felt that weight of condemnation from the Father. At that moment in time, He became to His Father the most repugnant thing ever. And so he cried out, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer to that question, by the way. It was just the anguish. Jesus' death was an immeasurable price to pay and it was for our benefit. It was only, it was only in order that the world might be saved through him Oh, by the way, I'm talking about the bad part, Jesus' death. Because we can relate to that humiliation and that pain and that agony and all of those other things, right? But I want you to remember that Jesus started out his life as that baby, as a fully human being. And so that means that for a period of about 33 years, his fellowship with God the Father was different. He went from being in perfect perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, being in heaven with God, being right there in his Father's glory, to being down here on this ball of dirt infested with a bunch of dirty, sinning, lying, cheating, stealing people that he was going to die for. God's love is sacrificial and expensive. Jesus paid everything for us. And it was utterly undeserved. So, our love has to cost us something. If it is active and it is undeserved and it is costly, what does it cost? Maybe the cost is that $20 that you have in your wallet when the homeless person comes up and says, hey, I haven't eaten in four days. Now, I know some of you, the minute I say homeless person asking for money, some of you are going to think, well, they're just going to go spend it on booze. Guess what? You're not responsible for what they spend it on. You are responsible for what you do with what God has given you. If he's given you that $20, that's your responsibility. Now, yes, Christians are called to have discernment. And if he's standing in front of the door of the liquor store, and he smells like that he just wiped the inside of one of those bottles clean with his t-shirt then it might be better for you to offer to go buy him $20 worth of food. I know some are going to say, well, I keep gift cards for restaurants in my pocket. Well, guess what? Gift cards can be traded for booze just as fast as dollar bills can. Go buy food and give it to them. Better yet, take them to a restaurant and sit down with them and have lunch. But do you know what they smell like? Doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe the cost is that ego that you have uh, that keeps you from doing something to reconcile with somebody that you've had an argument with. This, this is the part where Bill starts meddling because Bill's had this happen. Maybe the cost is your own pride, and you need to go to that person and say, you know what, I was wrong. Maybe the price is that feeling of comfort that you would lose by going to your neighbor and sharing the gospel with them. Now, in the world that we live in, I do not recommend, I never, 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 never recommend cold knocking on your neighbor's door. Because in today's world, you knock on your neighbor's door, you may find yourself meeting Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson. What I do recommend is get to know your neighbor. Bake him a loaf of bread. If you can't bake a loaf of bread call somebody who can. <laughs> I'm looking at Emily. Love, the way God wants us to love, should cost us something. So what do we do with this? We have this example of love that is set forth in these couple of verses. Love that is active, undeserved, costly. When Jesus says we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that's love that is active. That is love that is undeserved. That is love that is costly. When Jesus says that we need to love our enemies, that is love that is active and undeserved and costly. Our love for our neighbor should be active. It should be demonstrated. It cannot be predicated on whether we like them or not or whether we think they deserve it or not. And it must be done without regard regard for our personal cost. What does that look like? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Costly, undeserved active love looks like the father sending the son to save sinners it looks like the samaritan in the parable and i know parables are not true stories jesus was not recounting a historical event that took place this parable of the samaritan the samaritan the hated samaritan the samaritan that the jewish person the jewish person would take 40 miles out of their way to avoid running into a Samaritan person by going through Samaria. They would go 40 miles out of their way to get from Judea to Galilee. Right? That Samaritan in the story who, regardless of the way he felt about the Jewish person, the victim of the mugging, he picked him up, he tended his wounds, He put him on his mule, he got him to an inn, and he paid for the room, the food, and the medical treatment and said, if it's not enough, I'll come back and give you more. That was active. That was undeserved. And it was costly. That's what our love needs to look like. It looks like the Christian who doesn't judge the homeless beggar on the street corner, but gives his time, his money, and maybe even his own food. Here's the hard part. How do we do this? If you have it within you to do this on your own power, please raise your hand, because I don't need to be the one up here finishing this sermon. You do. None of us do. We can only do this if we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We can't do those things without the Holy Spirit, but we can't just sit passively and hope that the Holy Spirit's going to grow those things without us submitting. Remember I said we had two choices, we can submit or we can rebel. There is no middle ground, there is no sitting on the, there's no sitting on the fence. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, you can either submit or you can rebel. You can say yes, God, or you can say no, God. We don't get to tell God, not right now. So, now if you've been sitting here listening to this and you think to yourself, man, I really wish so and so could have heard this message. None of us would ever do that. I'm going to give you a piece of advice. I want you to go home. I want you to give so-and-so a phone call. And I want you to either invite them to your house or see if you can go over to their house, log into YouTube and pull today's message up and watch it together. Sacrificial, costly and undeserved. Then you can have a discussion about God's love. Or if you're like me, and you realize that you have issues emulating God's love, because I think each one of us would say that we do, then I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And as always, the altar is open if you want to come up. But let's all bow our heads, close our eyes, and think just for a moment about the love that we are called to have for others and how our love ought to look like God's love, active, undeserved, and sacrificial.